Ten years ago this week, I defended my doctoral dissertation. In doing so, I gave an hour-long public talk on the findings I had spent five years amassing. I wrote some 200 pages of dense scientific text about them all. And then the six faculty members on my committee got to ask me whatever they wanted for however long they felt like taking. As if it were yesterday, I can remember the very first question that one of them asked. He looked down at the thick binder in his hand, looked up at me, and said, So what? (laughs) Excuse me? I replied. So what? He repeated. You've done all of this work. You have all of these results. What difference does any of it make? It was not enough that I had worked hard for five years, that I had published peer-reviewed material in major journals, or that I had presented my work as a coherent story or exploration in my field. In order for me to pass my defense, I had to explain to the faculty what my work meant, what impact it had on the field I was in, and how it might change the work of others. Luckily, I had thought about all of these things, and I was able to answer him. A few weeks ago, I asked you to think about what this community offers to you as an individual. Today, I'm hoping we can take the next step together. The next question we have to answer is, so what? Asking so what is basically asking us to understand how being part of a religious community affects our lives. In what ways are we asked to change how we are in the world as a result of the things we learn here? How has being a Unitarian Universalist or knowing Unitarian Universalists or exploring liberal religion in general changed you? Just like in the world of science, Our religious exploration together is not worth the time or effort if, ultimately, it makes no difference to you, to us, or to the world. You're here. So what? And like our experience a few weeks ago, we will have ample opportunity for those here to share your own reflections on the so what in your life a little bit later. I believe that our faith and our congregation have saving messages for a world in need. Our task as a religious community is nothing less than bringing this to light. The task of those of us who are a part of this community is nothing less than letting people know that both here and wherever they find themselves, they are welcome, they are loved, and they are not alone. This task is important more important than we are likely to proclaim it to be. I first met my friend Kate when she moved from Moscow, Idaho to Durham, North Carolina to become the director of religious education at the fellowship where I worked. As a member of the staff and the former chairperson of the Religious Education Committee, I was asked to facilitate the retreat in which the committee and Kate thought about their vision for the year. Too quickly, this dedicated group of volunteers plunged into the many details of running a religious education program for 200 children. Kate stopped us for a second, and she asked us to step back, to look at a larger vision for what we were doing. 
She told us a story in which a mentor of hers had once remarked that we should approach religious education as nothing less than saving the world. Kate asked us to understand that our responsibility for ministry to and with the children of our congregation should be taken as seriously as anything else our congregation dedicated to justice and peace would do to make our world a better place. I believe that Kate's lesson about our work with children is equally true for people of all ages. Our task as a religious community should be seen as nothing less than saving the world. Our faith calls us to understand that there are many ways to experience that which is holy, that which is sacred, that which is worthy of reverence. And unlike so many other faiths, we are called to share our different experiences of the sacred with each other and not to divide into factions based on particularities of our belief or experience. So given the theological diversity that exists in a community like this one, Where do we start? In the ancient Hebrew wisdom literature known to us today as the biblical book of Proverbs, it is written that where there is no vision, the people perish. In that context, the vision that is spoken of is a society in which all people follow the laws and practices given to them by God. In that society, there were particular ways of being religious particular laws of right action and right belief that were taken as signs that people took seriously their covenant with God. Those laws of how to be religious were the starting and the ending place for the people of the ancient Near East. Those laws created the vision for all religious communities. We have no such rules here. As a community without creed or dogma, we reject there being one particular right way to think. We shudder at the very thought. So on what do we base our vision for the future? On what do we base our decisions for how we live our lives? Many would point to the seven principles of the Unitarian Universalist Association as one place that modern-day Unitarian Universalists can start envisioning a better future. They are a lovely list of ideals that this congregation has covenanted to affirm and promote in our society at large. If you're not familiar with them, they are printed on the back cover of your order of service. I invite you to peruse the list. We covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person, treating one another fairly and with kindness, acceptance of one another and our spiritual growth, freedom on our spiritual journeys and our search for what is true, our right to disagree and to have a voice in things that matter, peace on earth, and respect for the environment and other parts of creation to which we are connected. As I said, the principles that bind Unitarian Universalist congregations together are a lovely list and yet they are not enough. Despite the fact that they were never meant to be such, these simple seven statements have taken on a mythical quality in many of our congregations. Many have gone so far as to say they are the definitive list of things we believe. Who is this we, I want to ask? They are not enough 
because they are a list made by and for institutions. They are a list developed by a committee, edited by those with enough insider knowledge to participate in the complex process, and debated and passed by those privileged enough to attend our General Assembly. They are not a statement of our common beliefs. They are not a statement of our individual values. They're a lovely list, but they're not enough. They're not enough because they are a list, as our association's president, Bill Sinkford, quotes his predecessor, Gene Pickett, as having said, a list that describes a process for approaching the religious depths with no intimate acquaintance of the depths themselves. They are a lovely list, but they don't ask us to grapple with the question that is before us today. So what? Bill Sinkford suggests that we start answering this question by exploring what to us is sacred, holy, worthy of reverence. You may have heard at some point that the word worship means to shape worth. It comes from the same root words as worth and worthy and of shape, as in to mold or to create something. To worship something, then, means to give that thing honor and value in our lives. The act of worshiping is the act of creating that value. It is something that we do ourselves and not something that is done for us. The questions of reverence and worship are rightly separated from questions of natural versus supernatural, though they are loaded words in a society where so many people insist on one right way of worshiping one right object for reverence, and yet we don't. So the question then goes to you. What is it that you find worthy of your reverence? Is it the intricacies of life, the vastness of the universe, the mystery of being, the power of relationship, or your connection with something you call God? Is it something else, something beyond the limited imagination of your very human minister, or something you have barely found the time to put words to? What is it that you find worthy of reverence? And how does that reverence change you? At the end of the excerpt I chose for today's reading, Bill Sinkford writes that religious language The language of reverence and of worship is language that situates us in a context larger than we are, connects us to our source of meaning, and carries implications for how we should live. In other words, in naming that which is worthy of your reverence, we must get to the so what. What are the implications for how you should live that are bound to your belief system? How are your actions changed by what you profess to be a value of worth in your life? Tell us what you believe, and then tell us what difference that makes in your life, in our lives, in our world. You're here, in this place where we affirm your worth and hope to nurture you on your spiritual journey in this place where we strive for justice and compassion, and where we recognize our connection to the rest of the universe. You're here. That's great. So what? These 
are the questions of religion, the questions that bind us together. These are the questions that call us to develop meaning and purpose in our lives. These are the questions on which a vision is built. And without a vision, the people perish. So let us ponder this question and let us create a vision based in it. In order for our work together to be worth it, it must make a difference. It must be taken as seriously as if it were nothing less than saving the world. So may it be.